not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. My name is Kay Winnigal and today I'm joined by my co-host Natalie Bucknell. Hello Kay, hello listeners. And Michael Steindl. Hi everyone. Now, can you imagine a world without with driverless cars? And if so, what would that look like? Infrastructure Victoria is tasked with guiding Victoria's infrastructure priorities for the next 30 years and is developing reports outlining seven possible futures for the introduction of driverless and zero emissions vehicles in this state. The report, which is called Advice on Automated and Zero Emissions Vehicles Infrastructure, Future Scenarios, marks an important step in responding to, to the state government's re- request for advice on infrastructure and what it would be what it would look like. Here to explain the report is Project Director Dr Alison Stewart. Welcome Alison, thanks for joining us. Hi. Now Alison, firstly, tell us about Infrastructure Victoria. Sure. Uh, Infrastructure Victoria is the government's independent advisor on all matters related to infrastructure. Uh, We approach everything on the basis of um, producing enough evidence to uh, make some really good recommendations to the government. We seek to be transparent and consultative in everything that we do, so we try and engage with the community to make sure that they understand exactly what it is um, and why we're recommending things to the government. We have three roles. The first is our 30-year strategy, as you mentioned, Kay. Uh, The second is to do independent research on matters related to infrastructure. So we recently released some evidence um, around managing transport demand and some short-term things that the government can do to try and ease congestion. And finally, advice, uh, which is where my project fits in. So the government asks us specifically for advice on topics related to infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And you're obviously well qualified because you do mega projects, I understand, over a billion dollars worth. That's right. My background is in mega project management. I did my doctorate at the University of Oxford. I thought that was really cute. You don't touch anything less than a billion (laughs) dollars. Okay, so that um, infrastructure Victoria was started in 2015 by the current government. That's right, in December 2015. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be a number of reports. This is just the first of those reports, is it? Yeah, so we'll be establishing three reports as part of this project. The first report is the Future Scenarios Report, what you mentioned, Kay, and that one really sets out what our methodology is and how we want to make sure that we are considering a range of possible features for how this technology could roll out within Victoria. The second report that we're going to be releasing in August will focus on our evidence base. So that will actually um, basically communicate the results of the 10 different projects that we've been conducting over the last few months to understand specific areas of infrastructure and land use implications excuse me, implications um, for these types of vehicles. So um, the results of all of those studies will be made publicly available in addition to a report that we are producing that will sit across all of those and will examine um, the entirety of the implications for each of those different scenarios. So things like, you know, what is what would the transport network look like if we did have those different combinations of scenarios? What would the energy infrastructure to support that um, need to look like? 
uh, how might land use evolve? What would be the socioeconomic impacts of these different technologies? So all of those reports will be released. Our final report, which will be our specific advice then on the basis of that evidence base, will be released to the government in October. Uh, and we'll be consulting during the month of August to ensure that all of the work that we've done for the evidence base is then basically valid and the way that we've interpreted the results is valid in order to make sure that the advice that we provide to the government is well informed. So mm-hmm. who will be involved in that consultation stage of the process? So it's a public consultation. Um, we're looking particularly for um, stakeholders that have uh, a high level of awareness and understanding in this space so that they can um, provide that that insight that we need to be able to form the right uh, recommendations for the government. And invitations will be going out soon to um, to encourage people to attend that. But uh, if there are any stakeholders listening um, who don't receive that, then by all means, we encourage you to um, get in touch with us at our on our website at infrastructurevictoria.com.au. So presumably there's some kind of um, basis of, or framework for you know, the context that, that this is happening in. What are your recommendations based on what sort of objectives... So in our uh, 30-year strategy that we first released in 2016, uh, just a year after we were formally established, um, we recommended 10 different objectives for the state to achieve through infrastructure. So these are things like fostering a healthy, safe and inclusive community, um, building resilience to shocks, driving Victoria's um, globally integrated and changing economy, and, and trying to make sure that we tie our recommendations back to those objectives is important to us because we don't want these technologies to be introduced simply because they're they're the new and exciting thing. We want to make sure that we're actually achieving the best benefits for Victorians through introducing these technologies. I think you had both jobs and climate mitigation and adaption in there too. Yes, exactly. Yes. exactly. And what isn't included in the report? So we scoped out um, a couple of things. One, we are unfortunately not looking at aerial vehicles. Um, I know that's uh, there's a lot of buzz right now about aerial vehicles, but um, they require quite different infrastructure than um, <laughs> than road-based vehicles. So for the moment, we're not looking at aerial, aerial-based vehicles in this study. We're also not looking at footpath-based drones for similar reasons. We're also not looking at vehicles that operate primarily on private land. So agricultural machinery um, is obviously an area where there could be a lot of gains to be had from automation, but that's not something that we're specifically looking at in the study. Finally, trains and trams. So um, not because they couldn't also potentially have benefits from automation, but simply because, again, the infrastructure that's required to automate trains and trams is quite different. Now, uh, we are looking, however, at the broader impacts of road-based vehicles on the transport network. So we'll be making commentary on if we did have a significant uptake, for example, of zero emissions road-based vehicles, how might then that then impact on people's usage of the um, public transport network? So it's interesting that the, the scope of the study includes both electric vehicles or zero emissions vehicles and automation. Is there a lot of overlap between the infrastructure requirements of those two aspects of transport? That's a great question. And um, we certainly started with trying to uh, to understand how much those two technologies are likely to overlap. And the truth is that um, with the current position of both of those technologies, they are both posed poised to take off over the next few decades. And so we know that as automation um, takes off, it's likely to, it's more likely to happen in electric vehicles or in um, other zero emissions based vehicles. We also know that electric vehicles, as they progress, are more likely to have more automated features. So there's a lot of reasons that these technologies could progress in parallel. However, um, we did consider scenarios in which they don't. So one of our scenarios focuses specifically on electric vehicles that aren't automated. 
We didn't uh, look at a scenario specifically that that has automated vehicles that aren't electric simply because the infrastructure required for that type of technology rollout would be very similar to what we have today. If you had a driverless car that needed to go to a petrol station, it would go to a petrol station, mm-hmm. but you mm-hmm. don't necessarily need to build new infrastructure for that. You, you come up with seven scenarios, and that's going to be the, the guts of today's program. Can you briefly give us an overview of those? So we've sort of got a mental picture of the roadmap we're going to address and then we'll go into each of them in more detail. Sure, sounds good. So we're trying to uh, look at scenarios that test different things. We wanted to combine um, different technologies from the uh, zero emissions perspective. So we're looking at both electric and hydrogen-based vehicles. We wanted to test different combinations of driverless and non-driverless vehicles. We also wanted to test different ownership and market models. So there's a a lot of um, speculation that these vehicles are likely to come with shared market models. So where you have a fleet-based service, sort of like an Uber or Ola um, that we have currently in Melbourne, and that, that, that you would essentially use that kind of a service as your primary method of using a vehicle. So rather than owning your own car, you just use, for example, an app, and the vehicle would show up and take you where you need it to go. It's almost emerging of public transport and private ownership, isn't it? To a certain extent. So we wanted to understand how those um, market models might then impact on things like charging infrastructure requirements and uh, land use requirements, etc. So our first four scenarios focus specifically on those different technology combinations. Uh, First is Electric Avenue, which is an entirely privately owned fleet. So similar to today, everyone has their own car, but they're all electric. Mm. They're not driverless, though. So everyone still drives their own vehicle. The second scenario then adds in the idea of automation. So it's called private drive, and effectively everyone still has their own private vehicle, but they're driverless and electric. Third scenario then adds in the kind of most different scenario. So this is the one called Fleet Street. So that's where we add in all electric, all driverless, and all shared. So nobody owns their own vehicle anymore because we want to understand what would what would be different if literally no one had their own vehicle. This service mm-hmm. that can be provided is just so good that everyone takes it up. And our final of the four technology scenarios is hydrogen highway. And that one looks specifically at uh, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, which are also electric, of course, but they have hydrogen as their method of propulsion rather than electricity. And we look at hydrogen vehicles that are privately owned but are all driverless. That one's quite similar to private drive but with a different propulsion technology. This is hydrogen with fuel cells, so it's still an electric vehicle essentially. but An electric motor. Yeah. Mm. Okay. But powered through hydrogen instead yeah. of electricity. So, and that's both for trucks and vans and as well as cars. Yeah, and actually all of the scenarios um, look at our entire fleet. So all of our scenarios assume that the base setting is true for all types of vehicles. So be that vehicle, passenger vehicles or freight um, or buses. But uh, with the hydrogen highway, um, through the research that we've done, it's, it became very clear early on that um, hydrogen is a very good source of fuel from a power-to-weight ratio perspective. Mm-hmm. So for heavy vehicles, it's quite hard for them to have to carry a big battery to be able to mm-hmm. actually propel them at the same time as they're carrying um, whatever it is they're trying to, to move. So hydrogen has a lot of advantages from that perspective. So we think that the most likely way that a hydrogen future might come to pass would be if uh, a freight operator were to purchase an entirely hydrogen-based fleet, and that would then encourage the infrastructure that's required for hydrogen to be built and then pop possibly then bring everyone else along with it. Just, I went to a lecture last week by Moreland, chief engineer, who uh, they're experimenting with and running hydrogen-powered pickup trucks, they're, they're rubbish trucks. And in an hour, he totally swung me around to the virtues of it. Um, and the weight thing is one massive thing, that, that um, it would add three tonnes with batteries, and that limits the number of bins that they can pick up. The hydrogen actually makes the truck lighter. 
and it's not actually carting hydrogen around. You just run the electricity to their station. They generate the hydrogen on site. So it really does have advantages. Exactly. And if hydrogen is produced through electrolysis, which is what Moreland's planning to do, they're planning to use mm-hmm. solar panels to uh, to run the electrolyzer to actually produce the hydrogen, then effectively it's it's zero emissions, exactly. um, both yeah. from the source and yeah. from the actual We're happy vehicle to have emissions. Him on shortly, yeah. Yeah, so those are the four technology scenarios. Then we have two that test different timing scenarios. We have one that we call the slow lane, which is effectively a 50% mix of our current vehicles. So they're um, ICE vehicles, they're um, privately owned, and they're non-automated. And 50% of trips that are taken by this fleet-based service. So all driverless, um, all electric, and all shared. And that has some really interesting implications in terms of, of how that might work on our transport network. We then have a scenario that we call high speed, so where all of the rest of the scenarios I've described um, are based in the year 2046 for 100% adoption. This scenario looks at 100% adoption by 2031. We recognize that that's extremely aggressive, probably not hugely likely, but we wanted to understand what the difference would be if we did have a very high uptake of these vehicles very quickly. And in essence, what we think that scenario really brings to the fore is the waste challenge that we might have if people for example, were to start abandoning their vehicles. So you can imagine if if we had a, an Uber or, or Ola-type service really take off and, and people just loved it and essentially stopped driving their own cars, you can imagine that, you know, the the market for second-hand vehicles might basically disappear negative, relatively fact, quickly. Yes. Uh, and therefore, you'd have a lot of vehicles that would need to be disposed of very quickly. Mm-hmm. So that's, that allows us, to, allows us to test some different infrastructure implications. Mm-hmm. Final scenario is what we call dead end, which is effectively one of these technologies aren't actually the feature at all. This is a really useful base case for us. So it means that we have something to compare the other cases to. So when we say in 2046, these vehicles don't actually exist at all. They've been superseded, for example, by aerial vehicles, if you will, Mm -hmm. or by any other technology that we know is currently being developed or that we don't know is currently being developed. And that really makes sure that anything that we recommend to the government, we can provide some really good advice on what are the no regrets investments. So the government's quite concerned about making sure that we don't invest in anything that is going to become obsolete within kind of the next 10, 20, 30 years. And so we want to make sure that we're providing good advice um, from that basis. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Dr. Alison Stewart from Infrastructure Victoria about the new report on autonomous vehicles. So, Alison, let's get back into scenario one. Can you tell us a little bit more in detail? Sure. Like I said, Electric Avenue, we have 100% of vehicles that are um, electric, specifically battery electric vehicles, so we're not looking at hydrogen in this scenario. It's the year 2046, and we're also driving our own vehicles. This is probably the most similar future to today. So we know that electric vehicles currently exist. Effectively, this just says uh, we replace our current petrol vehicles with, with electric vehicles. Because we only know that electric vehicles exist in Australia. We don't have very many. <laughs> no, we don't. We've read have, about them Yes, existing. exactly. <laughs> yes, the take-up has been quite slow. But again, that's not hugely surprising. They're still more expensive than petrol vehicles at the moment. And so uh, until that is really, until price parity is achieved, I think we're going to have difficulty convincing the Australian public um, in some ways to, to move that direction. Although when you look at the overall lifetime costs, I would suspect that they're probably already the total life cycle costs. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the implications of that would be, you know, people aren't buying petrol or diesel, and the fuel excise would be impacted. Obviously. Well, and for all of these, yeah, <laughs> suddenly the government loses that revenue stream. If you can 
Have you evaluated that at all, the implications? Yes, we have. So the financial analysis assessment that we've done will be published in August, and we certainly have looked at fuel excise as one of the elements. It's a bit um, tricky from the perspective of the state because it's not necessarily a clear line between the the fuel excise taxes that are charged by the Commonwealth and exactly Mm -hmm. um, what comes back to the state. But in general, when you kind of determine a proportion of fuel excise that's likely um, to be attributed to Victorians, the most important thing is actually understanding what what the money uh, is in theory used for, which is things like road maintenance and construction. So the the big gap is to, in terms of understanding how can we ensure that overall the, the required activities that we need to do from the basis of what the vehicles are, are actually doing on the roads. So, you know, making sure that our roads are well maintained is really important. And so when we're looking at replacing fuel excise, we want to make sure that it's not just about replacing the revenue, but it's about making sure that we're covering the costs that fuel excise is currently covering. In terms of emissions, and we're not just talking about vehicle emissions, which is an incredibly important thing, but we're also talking about Victoria's targets. Yeah. That will make a big difference having all electric on it. Absolutely. And that's another thing we're looking at in terms of another study that we're going to be publishing in August, which focuses specifically on the energy network implications for these scenarios. And so emissions is obviously a huge area. Um, Similarly, we have another package focused on environment and population health to understand exactly what it is that... um, that, that we could gain from uh, from not having emissions anymore. Now, the source emissions is another important part of that story. And so we know that currently our grid um, is quite carbon intensive. Obviously, the government has targets in terms of reducing the carbon intensity of, of the grid, and that will then have follow-on implications for um, the overall emissions, not just from the tailpipe, but from the overall vehicle. Um, we're also doing a study into the overall uh, manufacturing uh, emissions from these vehicles because it's important to understand not just, um, again, the, the vehicle itself as it's operating, um, but also the the, gen- the actual creation of the vehicle itself and the disposal of things like batteries. So mm-hmm. all of that information will be provided in our study in August. Mm-hmm. Good on you. So scenario two, it's option one where we've gone all electric vehicles but we're also added in automation in all those vehicles. Yeah, so they're all driverless. So one of the interesting things about this scenario is that um, you could, in theory, you know, have your car take you to work and then send your car home to, to go park itself back in your driveway. So you wouldn't necessarily need to pay for parking. Of course, that then has implications on you know how many empty vehicles. Exactly, how many empty vehicles do we have running around our city and what does that then look like? Mm, but on the other hand, saves parking in the city. So it still means that people own all their own cars. In that scenario, people own their own vehicles. So again, Mm -hmm. it's relatively similar to today, private ownership, but again, Mm. the cars are all driverless. And And we're talking about cars there. What about trucks and buses and so forth? They're not owned individually? Or no, trucks and buses, yeah. So that's a, a good clarification to make. So while we're saying, basically we say private that ownership stays the same as it is today in that okay. scenario. So there's no change. So yes, so where buses are currently um, operated by uh, public transit operators, that will continue um, similarly with freight. So this is basically a no change. So while we say private ownership, we're, we mean private ownership of um, private vehicles, but of course vehicles that are already public aren't going to be privatised in that scenario. And the main thing that... Um you would be concerned about is the fact that there may be an increase in the road usage because people will be sending their vehicles backwards and forwards. Exactly. So we've engaged um, in transport modelling using our tool called the Melbourne Activity-Based Network. So this is an agent-based transport model, which effectively models each individual in Melbourne um, using their particular um, characteristics of travel. So using the Vista Travel Survey that's done by the government, as well as our Victorian future projections for how we think the city is going to grow to basically then determine exactly how our transport network will operate with specific restrictions. 
So scenario three, you've now flipped the private ownership to being fleets. Exactly. So this is the most different scenario from today. So nobody owns their own car. Um, we all just dial up a select a, a vehicle on an app when we need it. Um, Which the young are up. increasingly doing already, aren't they? Yeah, ride sharing, um, car sharing is certainly on the on the rise among uh, younger populations. But actually, um, there, there's a significant demographic. Some cities like San Francisco have taken this up en masse, and they're seeing a huge increase in the number of people across um, a, a wide range of demographics. I think that's an interesting thing to consider as well. When we have this kind of fleet-based or even a private-based um, automated vehicle future as a possibility, we need to think about what that means for people that aren't currently driving. Mm-hmm. And there's multiple populations. So if you think about the young. So, for example, you could send your, your older school-age child, so say a 13-year-old, yep. to, to school in a private driverless car, you wouldn't necessarily need to take them to school anymore. But alternatively, at the other end of the spectrum, we have elderly people who are currently, you know, for example, living in regional and rural areas and have difficulty connecting to the community um, from from a transport perspective. This could really change the way that they operate. And then, of course, current mobility impaired constituents and, and, and people that we have in Victoria might see a very, very different way of actually getting around with the advent of driverless vehicles. We do need to be careful about not just the vehicles themselves, but also how you access vehicles for that community. So it's important not just to think about kind of, you know, we talk a lot about last mile. This is really last meter. How do people get from their doors Mm -hmm. into vehicles? In both these scenarios where you've got high penetration of automation, one of the claimed virtues is that you can actually get far more throughput on the roads because they platoon, they talk to each other, and they can have much closer following. Have you considered that? Can we just clarify what platoon means? Yes. Sure. Uh, so platooning is effectively where you would have two vehicles traveling very close together. So or more. Oh, two or more. Two or more, yes, mm. exactly. It could be a whole a whole chain of vehicles that could travel very close together. And uh, automation makes this more possible, but it's really the connectivity between the vehicles that makes that really compelling about the future of automated vehicles. So if, for example, you could travel you know, a foot or less away from the vehicle in front of mm. you that could have significant savings versus traveling, you know, a car length between the vehicle in front of you and your vehicle because you don't necessarily know what another driver's doing, whereas the vehicles can actually communicate what, exactly what they're planning to do to the other vehicles around them. And, and for that reason, the, the benefits increase dramatically as the percentage gets near 100% of automation. Potentially. So um, so theoretically, the, the current thinking is that you can get probably around a 75% increase in throughput. For vehicles passing the same point, you could actually get 75% more vehicles through the same point. So it really almost doubles our current road capacity, which is quite compelling. Do you have any sense of what it would do for public transport, given that it would be wonderful just to be dropped off and delivered to wherever you want to go rather than to an area that you want to go to? We will, and that's certainly something that we're really interested in exploring, is understanding whether um, automated vehicles might have detrimental impacts on the other side on you know people not wanting to use public transport anymore. But we also suspect that um, certain commercial models from a fleet-based perspective, for example, might encourage people um, to use public transit more. Also, if you have... For example, more empty running of vehicles in the private drive scenario, people might not want to to use those private vehicles because of congestion, right? So you might then, again, get more people into public transport. So it's part of the transport modelling work that we're doing. We'd better very quickly look at the hydrogen scenario. I guess the infrastructure requirements of that are very different, again, to to what we've 
they are and hydrogen the, the hydrogen scenario is quite complex in that perspective because we're looking not just at electrolyzers but also if you could produce hydrogen through coal for example what would you need to do in order to make that zero emissions and so that then has a lot of other follow-on implications um, for carbon capture and storage technologies hopefully we do it off renewable power mm. so the the slow lane option that number Slow lane. So slow lane is a mix between what we have currently today and um, and Fleet Street. So it's kind of a halfway house, and that really enables us to flash up what the implications are for transition. So how might things um, be different if we have sort of that mix between the two different types of vehicles? What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? And what do we really need to plan for? Slow lane is one that we will almost definitely go through to some extent, um, no matter what future we go through. The, the question is just how long we're in the slow mm-hmm. lane, how long we transition, um, and well, whether we transition at all. And what percentage? You said before the show that probably it's going to be a combination of all of them. Yeah, um, we don't expect any of these scenarios to happen in isolation. Yeah. We think that the most probable future is actually a combination of all of them. So scenario six, it's more like the Tony Sieber video on YouTube where you get a really high-speed adoption? Absolutely, and it's certainly possible that people might just think this technology is the, the greatest thing, and um, if I can just order a car and not have to worry about driving anymore then my life's totally different and that uh, might happen literally overnight. So. Oh, would for me. Yeah. A lot of people say that. There are other people, though, that we know, you know, say the opposite, right? There's yeah. no way, no way you're going to get me into an automated vehicle. No way, no how, never going to happen. Hmm. But I do wonder how many people um, who were in horse and, horses and carts said the same thing about human-driven vehicles, right? No way you're going to get me into an electric motor. Just not going to happen. And finally, the, the dead-end scenario. How, how likely do you think it is that, you know, things would just stagnate. Remain the same in 30 years. Are you talking about the federal government's policies? (laughs) (laughs) It's so hard to say, to be honest. Um, You know, I think there, with this technology, what we have to remember is that automated vehicles are highly automated, so we're talking about essentially driverless vehicles, are not commercially available right now anywhere in the world. This is very new technology. We're right at the beginning. Of course, um, electric vehicles are a very different story. There are lots of electric vehicles around the world, but certainly the penetration in Australia is still very low. Um, so, yes, it is definitely possible that something else happens, right? We know, again, the buzz around aerial vehicles is huge. Um, we know Uber is looking into their Uber Elevate service. They were here um, spruiking in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago um, in terms of, you know, could we actually take helicopters um, as part of our, our transport um, day-to-day? Who knows, right? It could The future could look very different from what we expect. Well, it's a fascinating discussion today, and we've just run out of time, unfortunately. Where can our listeners find out more about this? If you go to our website at infrastructurevictoria.com.au slash avadvice, all of our reports, everything that we're publishing um, will be available there. And, uh, and there's also going to be a link to our consultation website there. So you can read all the documents, look at all our research and provide us with any feedback that you want to. So that was Infrastructure Victoria website. And what was the rest of it? infrastructurevictoria.com.au slash avadvice. Avadvice. Okay. Thanks again, Alison. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, yes. Thanks for your time. We've been speaking to Dr. Alison Stewart from Infrastructure Victoria about the new report on autonomous vehicles. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, you can go to the BZE website and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the show and can help donate to cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website or the BZE Facebook page and click on the donate button. Thanks again for listening and we look forward to seeing you again next week.
Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.